Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast. I am going to dispense with asking what we are all drinking uh, today. I think we've got a serious topic that we're discussing. And for me, I'm really here to drink in the experiences of people who um, are have you know experienced life differently from me. So we have got with us today Isabella Tabarovsky and Asra Namani to speak with us about the current rise in anti-Semitism that we've seen over the past week in the wake of the Israel-Palestine conflict and how that's kind of playing out across the world, but also specifically in the United States. And before I introduce you to a little bit more, I just wanted to let you know where I'm coming from. And I think this is, I'm so excited about this conversation because we all just have so many different life experiences. And I come from, to this conversation, uh, I think in, you know, from a kind of a the dominant in America, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant you know, perspective, but I come at it very, very, very concerned and in what I'm seeing and how we are manipulating a lot of the narratives and I and in and, and my desire to find our common humanity across you know this conversation. And so with that said, I'll introduce both of my uh, my my guests here today and, and then we'll kind of get started on what we're seeing happening as a result of, or not as a result of, but in the wake of the Israel-Palestine conflict. So I've got Asra Namani. She is an author. Her One of her books, Standing Alone, An American Woman's Struggle for the Soul of Islam. She is a Muslim reformer. She's a former professor, news correspondent, and recently helped to start Parents Defending Education. I also have Isabella Taparovsky. She is a researcher at the Wilson Institute she researches on the Holocaust, and she actually coordinates the U.S.-Israel Working Group on Russia and the Middle East. And she's currently working on a book and doing her research right now, actually, in Israel and Jerusalem. So with those introductions, uh, Isabel, I'm going to start with you. And I would really, I know you've written a lot recently on anti-Semitism and your background as a Russian Jewish immigrant. You've, you are very familiar with propaganda and how propaganda was used in your early, uh, well, use today even, but you know, you saw it from a very unique perspective coming from the former Soviet Union. So can you give us a background of what you are seeing happening now in this rise of anti-Semitism in the wake of the Israel-Palestine conflict and you know how that's affecting our the way we are communicating? Sure, thank you so much for this introduction. And uh, and I'm really excited to have this conversation with Astra because I think I, I would love to hear, I think I think there's a lot to be gained with, with the kind of dialogue that we're attempting here. Um, look, I think one of the most, uh, most sort of distressing things for all of us um, who are in, you know, who are close sort of observers and are ourselves Jewish, but also researchers and who are online, one of the most distressing things for us to see over the past two weeks was um, the, the, the narrative, and more than the narrative, really the hate that rose um, as, uh, as Israel and Hamas um, exchanged fire, um, etc. cetera, um, that was just, just, look, some of it is something that I have been hearing since my 
childhood in the Soviet Union. You have tropes that actually uh, were invented in the, in the Soviet Union, such as Zionism is racism, Zionism is fascism, or Israel is a fascist state, or Israel is a settler colonial um, apartheid state. Like these were propaganda tropes that were developed specifically for the Soviet um, kind of foreign policy purposes. And to see them appropriated today is extremely, you know, 30 years after the Soviet Union um, has disappeared, uh, to see them rise to the surface over the past few years, and especially over the last 10 days is extremely disturbing because I understand that these are propaganda tropes, but some people actually think that they are criticisms of Israel. There is a big difference. There is a difference between how we criticize and how we demonize. And what we saw over the last 10 days, two weeks, was this increasing levels of demonization that were supported from the top, uh, from some of the people in Congress. And when the violence broke out against Jews in, the, in, American, in the streets of American cities, and, and we saw it in London and in, in Berlin, um, there was, it was like, it was silence. You know, there was such a, it's like, nobody could really condemn it in the right way. And then condemnation, condemn, condemnations came but in a very kind of half-hearted, tepid way, and we can get more into it in a very kind of mealy-mouthed and watered-down way. So, so I find it very distressing. This moment is very, very distressing to me as an American Jew because I feel like some, some um, evil forces have been unleashed. And we know from history that once you unleash the forces of anti-Semitism, uh, it's very hard to put them back in. So. I'll maybe st stop here and let Asra respond. I wonder how you see what's happening. Yeah, you know, I find it fascinating that you're talking about those tropes emerging out of the Soviet Union. I want to just add, explore that for just a second because I want our listeners too to learn with me. So they actually, the idea, I just want to focus on the one, the idea of Israel as an apartheid colonizer came out of the Soviet Union? It was one of the memes that was sort of before the meme word was invented? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It was, It was. look, all of this came, uh, it's one of the things that I'm researching now and I'm reading all of these propaganda books which the Soviets put out, uh, which is a very depressing reading. Uh, but but yeah, absolutely, they, they developed these memes. Uh, it was the KGB that developed them. Uh, why did they do it? Uh, because they viewed Israel, it really goes back to 1967 and the Six Day War. Right. Um, that is when, you know, Israel was supposed to be defeated. The Soviet supported Arab states were supposed to win. Right. Um, they were obviously overwhelming, right? right? Overwhelming force. They were supported and supplied right. and trained by the Soviet Union. Right. When, they, when they lost, uh, it created a massive crisis on the Soviet side. And they needed to figure out uh, how to, uh, they suddenly felt like, wow, there is somebody in, in the Middle East. And of course the Middle East is a crucial area at that point, yeah. who is an ally of the United States and has just won. And how did they win? Well, there must be something, there must be some kind of big conspiracy there or something like that. And that is when be they begin to work mm -hmm to demonize Zionism, to demonize Israel, and they begin to pull on the same age-old anti-Semitic tropes, only right. substituting Zionist for Jew. Okay. And, yeah. Excellent. This is such, I think it's just so important to have that sense of the history because 
if it, we have to know where these things came from to understand what we're battling today. Um, yeah. And and that was enlightening for me too. So I, I will just say that, you know, I came to this country, the United States as a young Muslim girl, I was just four years old. It was the summer of 1969. So I grew up in, uh, in America and it was in 1979, I was 10 years old that the Iranian revolution happened um, with the Shia uprising in, uh, in Iran. And then concurrently the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and the Saudi influence emerged. And so in the context of the already antagonism that the Soviets had against Israel from the embarrassing defeat of the 1967 war, now Israel becomes a part of the targeted um, demonization of the Sunnis, the Saudis, and the Shias, the Iranians, as they want to create another enemy, right, for Muslims to hate. And so that's what I grew up with. I just wanted to kind of give that context because it was then that I um, started hearing in my own Muslim community, you know, the, the, you know, the narrative that had really been percolating through the decades of Israel's existence, but had became, you know, now amplified about this oppressive regime. And, and this was just, you know, in the 19, 1979, before all of the events that are to, you know, proceed over the next decades. And, um, and it was then that I also knew that um, at our mosque, you know, we started preaching these kind of anti-Israel sentiments. And this was, so this is decades ago, right? And, um, and I, I'll just make it very personal too, which is uh, I moved to West Virginia and I was a, a Muslim girl growing up in a conservative family when I got the little permission slip to learn to dance at school in sixth grade, my mom said, oh no, not acceptable. You know, cause no good Muslim girl dances with a boy. And um, she wouldn't sign the permission slip, but I was, you know, paying back then too. And I got my mom to sign the permission slip. And sure enough, then one day I went to, um, to school and we learned to square dance. So that's what you learn to do in West Virginia. And my um, dance partner was a boy by the name of David Stitzel. Um, he was from a Jewish family and his mom was creating the women's studies department down the road at West Virginia University. At no point in my family's you know, story was that an issue. It was just me dancing with a boy. I didn't grow up at all with that narrative of the Jews as the enemy or Israel as an enemy state. In fact, um, my name, Asra, is uh, the story of this mythical journey that the Prophet Muhammad made from Mecca to Jerusalem on a winged horse. I call it Pegasus. Um, and then from there, he went to the Dome of the Rock and then did the ascension to the heavens. That's the way the story goes. And um, one, one day, I hope you can go to the mosque that's underground um, at Al-Aqsa and there's literally a ring of a, of a horse's, you know, that you tie a horse wow. to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the, wow. I there. Yeah, I went there and the, the, the guide was like, and this is where the horse was tied up. I'm like, 
oh my gosh, the poor horse is like flown from Mecca to Jerusalem and now he gets tied. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, that's funny. You know, I want to, can I just ask you to just uh, roll, just like what you did with my story. I want to go go back for a second to 1979. So are you saying that uh, that is, that is when you first began to hear the whole anti-Zionist kind of preaching and all that? Is that? Yes. Yes, I did in my life, because that, mm-hmm. in my young life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was obviously part of the narrative from the Muslim Brotherhood and all of the political Islam groups that had been emerging through the uh, 50s and 60s in, in Pakistan, in India, in Egypt, um, all over the world. But I, I remember um, specifically going to the home of a family friend who had just become indoctrinated into this um, political party called Jamaat Islami. Um, and um, there, and then he was also affiliated with a, a sort of a missionary group of Muslims called Tablighi Jamaat. And it was there then that I first started hearing, you know, the anti-Jewish, anti-Israel sentiments again and again and over and over again. And, um, and it, it was a reality that I just, um, separated in my mind and it was really um because it wasn't like I was saying it wasn't the reality of my family so I didn't confront it and then you know in my story um the moment that I finally finally faced the reality of this uh, horror was January 23rd 2002 when my colleague from the Wall Street Journal uh, Danny Pearl left this home that I had been renting in Karachi, Pakistan for an interview. And then, as you know, he never came back. And, um, and you know, I have just right behind me um, this book. I, I keep it as a reminder because it's the book that his, his father and uh, mother created um, where people have their personal reflections on Danny's last words, I am Jewish. And and that was the moment when I understood that this was a matter of life or death. You know, like I, I, I literally then saw these criminals take Danny's Jewish identity and his Israel ancestry and use it and weaponize it to slay him in the most brutal of ways. And when I watched the propaganda video, I saw not only this beautiful soul stolen from this earth, but their propaganda messages, you know, all throughout, they have all of the, 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 you know, uh, fabrications along with the news footages and this and that of, of their propaganda. And, um, and the the alarming, alarming uh, story that we have to talk about is how this is now playing out today. And it right. is very much playing out today. Exactly. Well, I think that, you know, you actually, you just brought it from words to action. And that is exactly what I think is so, not I think, I know is so concerning because uh, people either don't know or they don't realize or they don't want to confront this fact that certainly, but, you know, when you go out into the streets and you you chant messages that you say, well, they're criticisms of Israel. I'm just criticizing Israel. When I say that Zionists are racists, or when I say that Zionists are white supremacists, I'm just criticizing Israel. It's actually not criticism of Israel. 
It's propaganda. And, you know, you can criticize Israel without being anti-Semitic. Jews do it all day long, right? right? Like Jews in America do it all day long. Jews in Israel do it all day long. It's like we all criticize Israel all the time. You don't have to become anti-Semitic while doing it. Um, one way that you do it, for example, one way that it turns into Semitic, uh, and it was so obvious, there's so much on display this past two weeks, is the idea is the questioning of the legitimacy of Israel, the questioning of the Israel's right to exist. And at some point when you repeat it often enough, it becomes so destabilizing. Uh, for me as a Jew, it's like, even, even though I, you know, I have uh, it's like, I know how propaganda works, but I also can observe when you hear it all the time, you just feel like, my God, they really want to like murder the state. You know, it's right. truly incredible because you don't ever hear this rhetoric about any other country, right? Like we can criticize France, for example, for, I don't know, for how poorly it integrated its Muslims. We can criticize it for all kinds of policies that its government is conducting, but you will never hear somebody say, well, France needs to be erased from the from the face of the earth. And they say it with Israel all the time. And because that, that is, is- That's their goal. I mean, that's- Exactly. That's, right, I don't mean to interrupt you, but- that's No, please. Exactly the um, clarity that people have to have, that the objective is not you know, a peaceful solution. The objective is to eliminate Israel. And if you believe that this nation has a right to exist, then, you have to uh, stop being naive. And I, I just want to connect the dots too again. I, while you were speaking, I pulled up this tweet, um, a tweet that was um, put forward by a school board member. And this is what connects the dots to how this is not only the stuff of like high level um, propagandists, but also at the at the lowest levels of political governance in America. Um, so this, this uh, school board member in my home county here in Fairfax County, Virginia, her name is Abrar Omesh. And she wrote on Eid, Eid Mubarak, congrats on 30 days of worship. Hurts my heart to celebrate while Israel kills Palestinians and desecrates the Holy Land. So she, captures the holy land um, and the killing. So hurts my heart to celebrate while Israel kills Palestinians and desecrates the holy land right now. Apartheid and colonization were wrong yesterday and will be today here and there. And so Isabella, as you see how just masterful and just strategic this is because from what we just learned from you, she's capturing the trope that the Soviets put forward decades ago, bringing it into today's world, putting up this beautiful smiling picture of herself and her brothers with masks on and a wide smile with like uh, her, her bright teeth. And then, but, but the thing is, who is this Abraro Mesh? She is the daughter of a man named Issam Omesh. Issam Omesh is a Libyan American who helped start and lead this mosque here in Fairfax County, Virginia called uh, Darul Hijra. Darul Hijra Mosque is where the Muslim Brotherhood sympathizers pray. 
It is called the 9-11 mosque because it is where the hijackers prayed. Her father was part of the hiring group that hired Anwar al-Awlaki, the imam who went to Yemen and was then later killed by a US drone. I mean, if you're not getting chills right now, I, I don't know what can alarm us more, but this is a machine, you know? And guess what? I went to the school board meeting last Thursday and I was shocked. There were hundreds of people there because the Jewish groups, some of them, not enough of them, but some of them came out against her, her tweet. And they, she and her father and that whole network here in Virginia, including the American Muslims for Palestine and um, all of these others brought out about a couple hundred people with the drums to protest any kind of censor of this woman. And, um, and there I stood and you can't even imagine, I turned around and there behind me was the founding member of the Council on American Islamic Relations, which is one of the organizations pushing boycott, divest, sanctions movement in America. Yeah, Isabella, isn't it just make, giving you chills? And, and this is how it's all like connecting and it's all penetrating into American society. Well, that's right. And what's, what's, what makes this moment especially dangerous is that it is connecting with something that has become part of the American mainstream that has come uh, together with what we call the woke ideology, yeah. right? That fits yeah. all of this so well, like hand in glove, right? The critical race theory, which views Jews as white adjacent and in fact white and su supporting white supremacy and therefore look at the next yeah. book that I've got right next to that book because that's exactly the ideology that these people are exploiting exactly yeah mm -hmm. exactly and so when you have when you have suddenly positioned Jews as white which is extraordinary because no one ever ever considered Jews as white right no one who ever killed the Jews ever considered them white. And now suddenly when whiteness is actually not a, a sort of a, a benefit, but it's the worst thing that exists, then Jews are equated with the whiteness. And, and then it allows you to just, you know, smear them with all kinds of, um, with all kinds of epithets and just disregard completely the Jewish history of oppression, the vulnerability of the Jewish community, which it, it always is because there are always you know, they're traditional haters from the right, but now we have the haters from the far left who are armed with this ideology, who are supported by this supposedly pro-Palestine movement, because what is, you know, they're, you're not gonna help Palestinians by beating up Jews in New York, right? You're not gonna help Palestinians by, you know, declaiming anti-Semitic slogans. Uh, and yet somehow they're still considered to be pro-Palestinian and they're still supposed to be considered to be the good people that's considered to be in the right. So, well, you know, I, I want to jump in here too because you, Isabella and I were talking the other day, Asra, because she said, you know, I wonder if there it's more than just what we're seeing on social media, and this is where I feel that we are at a kind of inflection here with how we have conversations in the U.S. beyond anti-Semitism, but it is that oppressor-oppressed binary that critical race theory and critical social justice uh, ideology 
really uses as its linchpin for all conversations. And so what I was telling Isabella is because that has been such a influential force in our society, in our, you know, this, you know, from parents defending education, you know, in our education platforms. And a lot of times people don't even recognize how much it's kind of infiltrated into our conversation. And particularly with young kids, I think this is why you and I are on the same page with parents defending education. There's not even that language. It's just something that has infiltrated into the way that we think. And so I see, uh, particularly with the Israel-Palestine situation, I have seen, not only have we seen physically people in the street in America, you know, um, uh, uh, an uptick in violence against uh, Jews, but we've also seen this play out. I've seen it with some of the young kids that I speak with because it's very much, it's again, it's very black and white. Why are you killing young kids? Right. And that's it. You know, and and they assume that that that's the end of the conversation. Like you should know that it's a moralistic thing. Like, and there's no other, because that's how much I believe critical, critical race theory has come into our, our, our mindset, our daily interactions. Yeah, it's a machine. It's a real machine. And, you know, for anyone that isn't familiar with the ideas of critical race theory, it basically has put forward this notion that all inequity, as the word that they like to use, uh, that that might exist in the United States is due to systemic racism. And that we all have to be judged by the color of our skin. And if you happen to be Jewish, you're going to now be put into the white basket. If you're a successful Asian, you're now put into the white basket. And it becomes this this oppression Olympics that dehumanizes everyone. Um, I felt it very directly because they went after my son's high school in Virginia, the school called Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, about 70% Asians, and they decided that that was the wrong kind of minority. And so, yeah, Isabella, you know, Jews have heard this before, right? Yeah. We have heard it. And I'll tell you something. I've also heard this um, in the Soviet Union where they also tried to manipulate the nationalities issues, as they called it, you know, especially in ethnicities. They always try to manipulate how many people of these ethnicities are here and how many of this ethnicity are there. And what happened is when the Soviet Union fell apart, you know, the anger that so many people had, I mean, it basically broke out at the edges. You had all this ethnic conflict all the time, in part because of all of these manipulations. And so that was my first thought when I got kind of acquainted with the critical race theory, that and also the uh, Nazi race laws. But it's just kind of comes from both sides, you know? Yeah. And what I noticed here is that um, they decided that they would then now have uh, race-based admissions process. So what they have done is they have put discrimination into the process. They have made racism acceptable and in the name of quote, anti-racism. And in fact, you know, the architect, Ibram Kendi, of one of these ideas is says that you have to have new discrimination in order to fix old discrimination. This literally comes out of his book. Um, my next book that I have, everybody's, everybody's getting a tour of my shelf. But what we're seeing here is this, this, and, and just the books that I've got. You know, the 
the intersection, to use their word, of all of these bad ideas. Um, but what, um, what is really disturbing to me is that, um, that these ideas of, of racism are now becoming part of our state-sanctioned educational process. And, yeah. and you know too that they're going after the curriculum um, in California, there's been a huge battle over this thing called the Ethnic Studies Program because the Palestinian activists like Hatem Bazian, who is a big sponsor of the Boycott Divest Sanctions Movement in America, he has put forward a lot of the anti-Israel propaganda through this organization called American Muslims for Palestine. Well, he and others started working to penetrate K through 12 curriculum in California. And the Jewish organizations had to like really stand up strong, but it's a huge battle. I mean, they have their eyes set on the curriculum. The, um, and just like Jennifer said, the, the things that our children think. Um, um, and so what, what, what's happening is that we are really gonna face this problem. Sorry about that. Um, where there is, uh, I, our kids, repeating this propaganda. Well, and again, I want to say that, uh, you know, when you hear people say that, well, you're trying, you, uh, your accusations of anti-Semitism are actually, with those accusations, you're trying to shut us up. You're trying to stop us from being able to criticize Israel. And it's not like that at all. As I said before, of course, we have to criticize. We have to be able to criticize anybody and everything, but we can do it without lapsing into tropes that provoke anti-Semitic reactions. And, and there is a way to do it. There is the International Holocaust, um, International Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, which is very thoughtful and very considerate, which says that, you know, explains when these tropes become anti-Semitic and when they don't. And now there is a this powerful movement to actually like bring down this definition so that people don't adopt it uh, because precisely because people want, some people want to be able to be anti-Semitic when they right. talk about Israel and, and Palestine. And you know, I want to, uh, well, go ahead. And I, I want to ask you a question. Say that Danny's dad, for example, really promotes the idea that people have to own up to their Zionophobia. That's what he's using. Yes. Yeah, he's using, you know, their terms against them and using, uh, you know, and, and basically dealing with the reality, which is that Zionism has become, you know, the new excuse to be anti-Semitic and, um, and, and we can all see through it. You know, ultimately, I know what is at the heart of the campaigns um, on Israel, and it is not to have a two-state solution. It is to have a one-state solution with a return of Palestinians to the quote homeland and, um, and ultimately demographically outnumbering the Jews that are in Israel. And, um, and you know, and they're not even secret about this as, a, as their agenda, like they justify it now. And that's what they're trying to make normative in people's thinking and, um, and, and so that, Kids, ultimately, kids will argue this at Model United Nations uh, seminars, and, and yes. they'll be the activists for this. Well, that's exactly right. And it's, it's very interesting that you say it, because a lot of times, um, a lot of times, it's actually, it, it's a factor that some people don't understand. Um, and I, if I can plug a book by someone, someone who I respect very much, Einat Wilf, 
She is a former left-wing politician in Israel. She's now an analyst, speaks a lot on these subjects. So she and Adi Schwartz wrote a book called The Right of Return. So mm. it is about this idea that they, they're saying that basically the one thing that has prevented uh, peace from being, uh, from coming, uh, or from, from this, this conflict from being resolved in a peaceful way is the fact that there is this demand that all of the descendants of the original Palestinian refugees should have a right to come back, not into the new Palestinian state that will be created, but into the sovereign Israel, into sovereign Israel. And so, so yes, absolutely, in order to overwhelm Israel demographically so that it is erased from the face of the earth. And I really appreciate you, you saying it because I think that it is something that a lot of times is misunderstood. And again, people will blame Israel and they will say, well, Israel is so incalcitrant and it really right. doesn't want to, right? But of course, because it doesn't want to be wiped out when this is the demand, it's right. a demand that Israel can't meet. Yeah, you, you just, like, I, I'm glad you appreciate me saying it out loud because I feel like people also forget this idea. You know, it would just be like, any any people saying, oh, we all want to come back and, and flood your country with our numbers. And basically then there's, and, and we see how they're using words as propaganda because they're, they're pushing for quote democracy, right? So then when they are demographically outnumbering the Israeli Jews, then they can outvote them. Like it's so obvious, like do the math, right. even though math right. is according to critical race theory. But in, but in this case, you know, it's exponential, right? What they're accomplishing. And, and you know, I've traveled to Israel now, um, uh, I guess three times. And um, yeah, I'm really happy to have been there. And I'm envious that you're in Jerusalem right now because I do believe um, it, it is a, a sound, profound place. And, and I went um, the last time and I did go across into the West Bank. And um, I had a, a former student who lived in Bethlehem. She was one of the last Palestinian Christian families that are li living there. And she has left now because even Palestinian Christians do not feel welcome in that homeland. And so this is a reality that people have to confront that um, this is what is happening now also within the Palestinian movement is it's not just that secular movement, you know, that existed decades ago, it is now an Islamist movement. Um, Hamas is very much an Islamist regime. They demand, uh, you know, strict interpretation of Islam so that you cannot be LGBTQ, uh, forget about any other acronym. You um, are unwelcome. I met so many young women who were living in the, in the, uh, neighborhoods that are called refugee camps, but of course they're, you know, they're not tents like I was imagining. They are completely constructed cities, apartments, and, and, and mosques. And they said that they were afraid to walk through their neighborhood without a scarf on their head now, because that's the interpretation, like a very orthodox interpretation. And you and I are both probably very much aligned to in like rejecting orthodoxy in in all interpretations, and um, and then when I traveled, you know, through Hebron, Ramallah, um, all of these areas, I saw, you know, thriving economies too. You know, I saw the big billboards of millions of dollars of aid that 
the UN and the government of Japan and uh, US have provided. I went and um, had dates, you know, in the in the um, front lawn of a millionaire uh, that lived off on the outskirts of Hebron. I mean, the notion, the propaganda that's being put forward about life there is also very skewed. Of course, I also, I also struggled for hours to get through the checkpoint, right? But the checkpoint is a reality that became invented because of this, you know, violence. And so the, everything is so complicated. And, you know, I stood where the graffiti is on the, on the, on the wall, right? Between the, between Israel territory and, and, the, and those territories. And it's awful. It is an awful thing to witness and to experience, but, um, but it's, it's, it's the result of this decades of, you know, violence that Israel has faced. And, and, and that's something that we have to be honest about too, which, and it's really not fair to, to dismiss it. Well, that's, that's right. You know, and I think, um, you know, when people say that it's an Israel-Palestine conflict, I actually want to prefer yeah. to say that it's an Israel-Hamas conflict. Because Israeli people are not at war with the Palestinians. And we, I think people here really, really wish with all their heart that people in Gaza will prosper. And that was, in fact, the idea when Israel pulled out of Gaza in 2005. There were plans, right? There were plans that it would be, there would be, in fact, Jewish donors were planning to come and donate just lots and lots of money to turn it into this great port on the Mediterranean. Uh, some Jewish businesses were going to be transferred to, to the Palestinian owners. And, and look where it all ended. You know, Hamas won, and that's it. And they've been running it since then, and they're using all the money to arm themselves and build, um, build, um, uh, sorry, I have the Hebrew word in my head. They, the tunnels, you know, which they use to, to they try to kind of transfer it. First of all, they hide and they try to, to like dig into the Israeli territory. And that's not to say that Israelis haven't made mistakes. Of course they have. The government has made lots of mistakes and I'm sure it could have hand, handled things much better, um, you know, but, but in the end you have to acknowledge that you're dealing with a terrorist organization whose goal is to wipe Israel off the yeah. face of the earth. Yeah, that's you know, and I, you can't forget that. That's, that's, you, you can't, yeah. you can't. And, you know, in fact, uh, I want to, for those of our listeners who maybe are not so tuned into this, like the chant that's very, very popular in the U.S. Right. these days, it, it pro-Palestinian right. so, pro rallies from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, right? What does it mean? So from the Jordan, from River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, Palestine will be free. It means it will be free of Jews. Right. So it's basically a genocidal chant. And when I first heard American students chant it a few years ago, I was just shocked. And then oh. they told me, well, but it's not anti-Semitic, it's only anti-Zionist. And I was like, wow. It gives oh, me wow. chills. And I will just say that I was watching hours of these marches from just a week ago because I wanted to find that moment because I knew that moment existed where the marchers were chanting from the river to the sea, Israel will be free. And this was just here in Washington, DC. And who was it that organized it? But the American Muslims for Palestine, the same organization that was then at the rally supporting our local school board member 
in her anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic tweet that she had posted out. So I hope that folks can understand like how insidious this has become and what the stakes are, because uh, it is existential. You know, it it is like I lost my friend Danny um, as an extension of this type of sentiment. They had him speak about his family in Israel. And at, in one of my trips to Israel, I did a pilgrimage to the place in B'nai Brak, where his, he said in the murder video that they broadcast to the world that his ancestor, Chaim Pearl, had helped to start the state of Israel. And there's a street in B'nai Brak that is named for him. So I stood at that corner. Yeah, in Isabella, you know, in homage and in honor of his Danny's ancestor and Danny's life and, and Danny's parents, um, because this is a reality and around me were families circulating um, and the hope that these modern day critical race theory people have where Black Lives Matter connects with the anti-Israel movement, <clears throat> they, they not only chant from the river to the sea, they're now chanting from Ferguson to Palestine. Like that's the connection, right, Isabella? That's the connection. And from Ferguson to Palestine means that they stand on Heim Pearl Street and they claim it also. They claim it and they name it and they rename it and they they eliminate the Jews that live there now. And and that's those are the stakes that we have to recognize. Well, and I think First of all, I want to thank you so much for sharing the story and for for doing what you did, because the, I mean, this is, you know, this is like, I think what Jen said earlier, when when you opened the, the podcast, right, this is about sharing our common humanity, right, like or honoring your friend, going to visit the street that was meaningful to your friend, that that transcends everything. And we need more of that in this terrible, terrible conflict where there are so many forces. The conflict itself is terrible, right? But because there are so many external forces that are trying to manipulate it and insert their narratives in it. And you just mentioned from Ferguson to, um, what is it, to Palestine, right? Um, I mean, this, this is another thing. Uh, gosh, it's so, we, we need like a three hour podcast on this. But Boy. you know, but this is- Boy. Was that? It's, it's chilling, it's Very exactly. Cool. Well, because what they're doing, and I will just explain it also to the listeners who may not be so attuned to it, is that they're taking American racial issues as interpreted, by the way, in a very distorted way through the critical race theory. And they're imposing them onto the Israeli-Palestine conflict to make it understandable to the American audiences. And they are, and it has nothing to do with reality. I mean, when they say that Israelis are white supremacists, and the Palestinians are people of color, there is nothing more absurd than that that you could say because, uh, you know, again, I was just rereading an article that Anat Wilf wrote. As she said, she said that she, she tells the story of how she was teaching a seminar to a group of foreign students 
in Jaffa, which is a very mixed city, and a, that's, there was a student who posed her the question about color in Israel, skin color, and she said to her, look, walk out into the street of Jaffa and tell me who is a Jew and who's, and who's an Arab. Can you tell? Right. It's impossible to tell. But they impose this toxic, it, this, this lens is toxic in America anyway. And it's completely, it toxifies the conversation about Israel. And so it's, it, it's, it, it becomes impossible to actually have a practical conversation about well, things. Well, I, if, um, if, if you wonder um, about myself, you know, I come completely from India. Um, my parents and my, um, and both my mom and my dad and all of my ancestry. But when I walked through Israel, I just felt like I was among my own people, you know, yes. Arab, Jew, whatever, Christian, whatever the external identity, like I felt like I was among my own people. And, um, you know, in my reporting, I also went to the street corner in Ferguson where Michael Brown was killed and where the marches began. And I went there because Linda Sarsour is one of the Palestinian American activists that have has weaponized, you know, the American civil rights struggle for her intention to destroy Israel. Uh, she stood at that street corner in Ferguson and she chanted from Ferguson to Palestine because she's part of this machine. Yeah, this anti-Israel machine. And it's just like you said, they're just using the civil rights struggle here for their own purpose. And, and they're able to exploit this whole idea of critical race theory because with critical race theory, you look at everything through the racial lens and what they do is they create this white supremacist, just like you said, of the Israel, the Israeli person, so that every Israeli now that they describe is the white European, like as if that just that's such a, a that's just their criticism of of history in America. All they're doing is whitewashing, right? The Jewish experience and. Um, most Israel, most Israelis are from Arab countries. Yeah. They they look exactly like you know they they are from the from North Africa. They're from the Middle East. They're from Iran, from Iraq. You know you can't tell them apart. Well, what I, you're not seeing on my neck right now is um, the necklace that I just couldn't find right now. But I'm always usually wearing it, and um, it is the uh, hand of Fatima, as we call it, and Hamza. You know mm -hmm. the 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 charm that um, is meant to, for protection. And I got mine at the King David Gate in Jerusalem. Um, and as a symbol to me of, you know, the, the need for both protection and connection um, amongst us uh, as, we, as we try to sort all of these, um, these propaganda tricks and these, um, you know, multi-million dollar funded machines of, of propaganda. Uh, and, you know, the, the BDS movement has now connected with the Black Lives Matter movement so that last week Black Lives Matter did a full on, you know, communications propaganda uh, ma uh, machine of messages related to their support for the quote, free Palestine movement. And, um, and people just shouldn't be fooled, you know, especially 
like people of conscience, like just like you and me, like we want solutions. I, um, you know, stood in Hebron also where the Arab um, families felt like they, you know, now needed to live, you know, with the nets over the bazaar, right? Because they had to protect themselves from garbage that they said that was being thrown by the settlers onto their, um, yeah, it, it gives, it, it makes you sad. I know this because like- when It empowers, so, sorry, I interrupted you. It the, what's happening now is that the, it empowers extremists right. and the mod, moderate voices on both sides, right? On both the Jewish and the Arab side and, and the Muslim side. And, you know, they, we need more moderate voices, but they have no room. They're being shut down or suppressed and pushed aside. And that is what happens. Yeah. We've right. started a group of Muslims against, <coughs> Muslims against anti-Semitism. Um, we oh, have amazing Muslims, Raheel Raza, Zudi Jasser, uh, you know, in Canada, in the United States, all over the world, uh, because we knew the two that, like, as Muslims, we have to stand up against the Muslims that are part of this Islamist propaganda against Israel. And so um, I'm just really glad. I have so much admiration for you. Just, just hats off to you because it is so, um, I think it is very hard to do what you're doing. And Osra, can you send me some of that information because I will include it also um, in the blog notes so that people can find out more about that. I mean, that kind of took me to where my, my last question for you was, how do we do this? How do we have this conversation um, in the Muslim community, in the Jewish community, and even, you know, in other communities, you know, religion aside, where we are focusing on our common humanity. And it sounds, Osra, like you are already on that path right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, we have been working just over the last few, few months on this new organization, but we've been working um, since 2015 with this formal movement that we have called, that we call the Muslim Reform Movement. And, and part of our agenda and our mission and our vision is to support the, you know, peaceful solution of, of uh, issues in Israel without destroying Israel. You know, this is a really fundamental idea. We have yeah. to have solutions with recognition of Israel's right to exist. Um, they, have, yeah. uh, they, they have been declared a nation. Uh, they have, uh, they have uh, battled, they have gone to war. The, um, the, the enemies that want to destroy it have used every tactic. Now they're using, um, you know, the social justice movement as a new sneaky way to try to destroy Israel. And, um, and this is, as Isabella said, this is not with blinders on our eyes. You know, this is with like a reality that we need to find a recognizable solution for those um, that are in the Palestinian territories. But part of their problem is their own leadership. And so that is their own, their own battle to, to fight. But we want to support all of those efforts and, and definitely want to connect with everybody who wants to do that in an honest way. Not this, not this stuff of, um, you know, this ridiculous um, movement that exists today that is just full of lies and propaganda and, and and also blinders we don't want to have blinders on our eyes about anything and totally. so yeah totally. yeah do you, think, do you think that you are in a minority or is this movement really starting to 
to gather steam and, and have. Well, Isabella, do you feel such hope? I mean, earlier this year, last year, because the Arab states were finally, some of them moving along. I mean, that was huge. You know, the United Arab Emirates finally moved along. Um, yeah. You know, other, other nations in recognizing Israel. Um, and so this, this is a conflict within Muslim countries too, because there are, I think, a majority of people who recognize the state of Israel now to exist. And um, they want to move forward and not backwards, but it's just like in the United States. It's these most loud, most violent, most aggressive people who feel the um, headlines. And, and people from my own profession of journalism are you know, just sadly calling for this right. uh, shenanigans. I mean, right. The, right. the Associated Press not knowing that there was a Hamas office in their building is, so unbelievable um, right. that they're hiring a known anti-Israel activist and then firing her, but wondering whether they did the right thing is just emblematic of the fact that um, even journalism has become co-opted, not only on this issue, but by the woke agenda um, on so many issues. And, and that's really distressing because, because we're not neutral brokers now in this. And, and so I, I do, I believe that what Isabella and I are talking about is the majority of people's understanding of things. It's just that most people are afraid to be called out as racist or hateful um, or, or beat up now in the street, right? right. Like right. Get beat up and, and people are afraid of that. Exactly. But, but we, should, we should not have fear because people have People, um, this is existential, and we should all have more courage because this is um, this is a really a historical moment. As are all moments of, of threat to anybody's existence, and that's what we're seeing today. Well, I agree, and I just uh, also want to say that uh, you know I wanted to ask you, and unfortunately, we I'll have to jump off in three minutes, but. You know, those like, for example, we saw these um, over the last several days, these convoys of cars driving through cities like through London, I think through L.A., through New York with Hamas flags, right, yelling through megaphones, death to Jews or rape Jews daughters, things like that. And I read an analysis, which I thought was very interesting, which said that it's by Seth Franzman in Jerusalem Post, who said that he views this as coordinated. These are like ISIS-like actions now in America, in England. And, and what it makes me think of is that for people who think that this will just pass them by, they have to understand that historically, Jews have always been the canary in the coal mine. In the, in the, in the coal mine. Uh, so when anti-Semitism rises, it means that there is something else in the society that is happening that will come to the surface, right? And if you kind of let, you know, let the anti-Semitic hate rise, well, don't think that they will be that it will just, you know, they will just satisfy themselves with the Jews, right? This is like, this was a display of power, which I think was meant to intimidate not just the Jews, but everybody. And they will we have come. to understand this. Yeah, they will come for you, whoever yeah. you are, they will come for you. And, and if, yeah. you, if, if you can imagine a day when everybody has a target on their back, it will that is the day that we are coming to because, um, and, and we all have to 
stand up like as moderates, as nonviolent people, mm -hmm. as peaceful people, we all have to stand up. Yeah. Well, I'm so, so grateful for this opportunity to talk to you. And I genuinely wish we, we had more time, but I, I'm grateful for this. And I hope that we will, you know, you can count me as a supporter for whatever you're doing. And I hope we will do something together yes. that can, yeah. right? Absolutely. We're, we're yeah. here together. Um, sometimes I, I like to say we're daughters of Hajar and Sarah, you know, um, they uh, were okay. separated, um, but we are daughters of that bloodline and we, um, we will uh, be together in kinship. Completely. Beautiful way to say. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bella, so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say Hold My Drink and the conversation gets real. <laughs>